Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, my fine friends. Welcome to the third episode of Season 7 of the Tom Petty Project Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Brown. This is the weekly podcast that digs into the entire Tom Petty catalogue, song by song, album by album, and includes conversations with musicians, fans, and people connected with Tom along the way. Um, like last week, I'm out of town again, if you listen to this uh, on the day it's released. I'm also writing and recording the episode away from home, specifically uh, in a pretty nice hotel room in the nation's capital, Ottawa. I've also got a little bit of a cold, so if I sound a bit congested, I think I've got a, just, just, just a wee bit of congestion. And where my Iqaluit trip was a pretty incredible opportunity and an amazing trip learning about a, a completely different culture within my own country, this one's more of a regular, you know, 150 people in a room looking at PowerPoints interminably, so I think I'm probably going to be fighting the urge to sleep pretty heavily over the next two days. And to be honest, I don't like being away from home, as I end up missing my family after a day or two, and living in hotel rooms doesn't really appeal to me. I guess I'd have made a lousy touring musician. Um, it also doesn't help that I had to get up at 3.30 this morning to get to the airport in time for my first flight, and I am not a morning person. However, I do have a rather lovely coffee stout brewed by Toronto's Bellwoods Brewery, you check it out if you can, uh, and a new portable mic to try out, and I'm ready to listen to and talk about the third track from Let Me Up I've Had Enough, the damage you've done. Uh, before we do that, though, I wanted to give a quick shout out to the very lovely Marilyn Manning, who very kindly and brilliantly stepped up to keep the Tom Petty Fans Forever group alive after the passing of our beloved Gwen Jones. And this past weekend, she made me a air quotes, and I know they're unfashionable, but air quotes group expert in that community. And I, I say this very honestly that I'm humbled and quite sort of flabbergasted, maybe, to, to be called an expert because, you know, the other two experts in the group are Dana Petty and John Scott. So you can see where I might suffer slightly from a little bit of imposter syndrome. Um, I do love the online petty community, though, and I'm so grateful to be able to contribute to it in my very small way. So thanks to Marilyn, uh, and also thanks to everyone who had very kind words to say on that post in the group. I'll do my absolute best to live up to that lofty tag. The first two songs on Let Me Up I've Had Enough were co-writes with Mike Campbell, who had a career-high five co-write credits on this record. The damage you've done, however, is all Tom Petty, and as he tells Paul Zolo in Conversations with Tom Petty, uh, it was completely spontaneously conceived live in the studio. Paul comments on the fact that there are basically only two chords in the song, and Tom explains, it was an improv. What I'd do is yell G, and everyone would go to G, then F, and everyone would go to F. Then I'd go back to the tape and take out those instructions. I love this little detail he throws in, and I think it would be pretty hilarious, actually, to hear the, the instructions, you know, if they still exist anywhere on tape. Um, you can hear a little bit of that on the alternate take, and again, I'm going to talk about that a little bit later. Tom continues, they had that much precision as a unit that you could call out chords and the band would change. So that's how I was doing that. And for those of you who aren't maybe as familiar with the songwriting process, or certainly the recording process, this is a pretty unusual way of crafting songs. But again, it's likely a, a hard pushback against the torturous process of getting Southern accents over the line. There are, of course, more fully produced and structured songs on this record, but many of them have this same loose, spontaneous feel that comes from the band simply following Tom's lead and fitting in melodies and harmonies that complement the song. Of course, lots of even average musicians can change chords when someone hauls them out, but as we'll get into maybe, that's quite different from creating an actual song that moves and engages and has distinct patterns and rhythms within it. I think this is actually going to be a fairly short episode, or maybe, uh, because structurally and musically, there's not really a heck of a lot to this song. It isn't actually two chords, well, at least if you take the root from the bass line, where how he's playing G, F, and then C, 
which is a really well-worn and trusted progression in rock and roll that's been used for decades. It's just the first, the major seventh, and the fourth. And again, we'll do some egg-sucking here, but for those of you who don't play or have never studied music theory, and trust me, I'm no expert on musical theory, um, when I say the first, that's the key that the song is in. So this song is in G. So that first chord that plays is the root, so the first. The next chord then is the major seventh. So if you think about do, re, mi, fa, so, la, ti, do, it's the T, the seventh note. Then it goes to the fourth or the far. Uh, in the bridge, we do get a key change with the C now becoming the root and the B flat becoming the seventh. Then to get off the bridge, Tom obviously called out D, which gets us back to the original key of G as D is the natural fifth in the key of G. So all very slick, very simple. Of course, slick and simple are hallmarks of what made the Heartbreakers so damn good so often. And other than a brief segue in the bridge, there's no real deviation from that bass progression all the way through the song. There's only an A and a C section. Really, like, musically, there's no B section. The chorus is just the same chord progression as the, as the verse. And it was bugging me for ages listening to this track over and over for this episode to figure out where I'd heard essentially the same progression at a similar speed with a very similar playing style, and it's that lovely old Canuck, Brian Adams. If you go listen to The Only Thing That Looks Good On Me Is You, man, it's, it's close. And, you know, if Sam Smith lifted I Won't Back Down, I think it's fairly safe to say that Brian Adams had the damage you've done rolling around in the back of his subconsciousness when he wrote his huge top 10 hit. I also bet that if Tom ever got wind of it, he'd have curled that lip, chuckled, and thought, hey, good for you, great song. The damage you've done fades in, which I think is the first example of that studio trick happening in the Heartbreakers catalogue, unless, of course, you consider even the losers. You know, I mean, because that's got to fade in, but it doesn't really fade into the main body of the song, so I'm, I think, like I said, I think this is kind of a first. And I assume that they did this because the first few bars would have been accompanied by, you know, some on-the-fly conversation to get the timing right and figure out, you know, Tom's, hey, so just just play a straight four or or Benmont, kind of hold that there. or Some of that stuff, just figuring out the very basics of it first as he's called out the chords. And then once they've ripped through it a couple of times with each musician thinking about that we're going to play, uh, they lock in and then they go with it. Uh, there is an alternative version of this song that I'll talk about near the end of the episode and give you some rationale as to why I think this actually is the first take. The one that we're listening to on the record, I think, is the first take. So Stan Lynch is playing a pretty straight backbeat, but with a four-on-the-floor kick pattern. And I'd say that the drums are the most noticeably improvised part of the whole track, as Stan really sounds like he's just having fun jamming with his friends. And again, his timing is metronomically impeccable. And there are times when he drops into little syncopated half-fills, or during the bridge where he pulls everything back to half-time to allow those lowered vocals a little bit more space to shine. And let's talk about the vocals in this one. I talked about what I saw as a heavy Rolling Stones influence on the guitars and the beat on uh, The Same Old You from Long After Dark. And this one reminds me of the Stones in a different way. It's the only time I can really remember Tom, you know, taking some of his phrasing from the Jagger playbook. And now let me say this straight away too, that I love the Stones, and I think they're obviously one of the most important bands in rock and roll history. No question about that. I also love Mick Jagger, and I think he's a, he's a great songwriter and obviously one of the, you know, one of the great frontmen of all time. But... Ladies and gentlemen, a singer he ain't. Not really. Um, so it's sort of fun to hear Tom aping some of the ways J Jagger drops the end of the syllables and sort of just lets that note fall away. It's a kind of lazy drawl that's not really a southern drawl, but more of a, a rock and roll or even almost a sort of a punk drawl aesthetic. And what I like about that vocal choice is that it's sitting over what's really a quite heavily country-infused swing to that backbeat, and especially the guitars. Maybe country rock more than country, but it's a very southern feel musically. So to have this lazy, swaggering voice laid over top of it, I find that pretty cool. This song's also another good reminder of exactly why Ben Montage is one of the most dependable, consistent musicians in the history of rock and roll. 
He could easily have been one of the Muscle Shoals session guys playing for a million artists and just slaying every single style he was asked to play because he kind of does that for the Heartbreakers week in, week out, album in, album out. Um, and while this song doesn't stretch his chops to any degree at all, it's where he chooses to swell the volume or push the tone that is so impressive. Again, those pushes into the chorus are so perfectly intuitive and seamless that they sound like they've been rehearsed dozens of times. But that's just a player at the absolute top of his game getting inside a jam instantly and taking it exactly where it needs to go at the right time. All right, folks, it's time for some petty trivia. Your question from last week was this. When the Heartbreakers took to the road with Bob Dylan on the True Confessions tour, in which country did they open the first leg on February 5th, 1986? Was it A, Japan, B, Germany, C, New Zealand, or D, Canada? The answer was, or is, is, still is, C, New Zealand. So after kicking off the tour with a hectic 15 shows in less than four weeks in New Zealand and Australia, the band played four dates in Japan before taking a short break ahead of the US leg of the tour, where they played 41 shows in two months, a pretty breakneck pace by anyone's standards. 1986 would also be the last time that the Heartbreakers would tour outside of North America or Europe and feature some of the largest crowds in the Heartbreakers' career, including over 100,000 who packed the Robert F. Kennedy Memorial Stadium in DC on two consecutive nights July 6th and 7th. Your question for this week is this, and if you listen to the first episode of this season, you should have an inkling of the answer. As well as jamming me, Dylan and Petty co-wrote another song that both the Heartbreakers and Dylan recorded, with the latter using it on an album. But can you remember which Bob Dylan album that was? Was it A, Knocked Out Loaded, B, Empire Burlesque, C, Down in the Groove, or D, Dylan and the Dead. Alrighty, back to the song. I've said on both of the first two songs from this album that I feel like the production lets it down somewhat. What I think they got wrong on Jamming Me and Runaway Trains, I kind of think they got right on this track. Maybe it's because it was a live take with no overdubs apart from the vocals, but organically, it feels good and it sounds good. There's really good separation between the lower and high frequencies, and you can really hear each individual track very, very clearly. And so if you think about you know, the first two tracks on this record and some of the stuff on Southern Accents, it's got that muddiness to it where it's a little, not, you just don't get that same crispness and clearness of each individual part. Now, going back to my comparison that I've made to the Brian Adams song I was talking about, and I'll maybe leave a link in the episode notes for that if you're not familiar with it, the itch that I couldn't quite scratch in my brain, it's what it was was that pick style of playing that Mike's using in places on the lead part and that Brian Adams also uses in his song. He's also playing those, those very sort of, you know, simple pentatonic licks over the top of the riff that is so, again, so, so similar to the way that Brian Adams puts those fills into his song and that little bit of a lead that he puts in. And in spots, you know, Mike really attacks the strings, uh, but for the most part, he's sitting back in the pocket and just driving the song along, adding a little bit of movement, adding a little bit of melody. You don't actually hear Tom's guitar very high in the mix at all, and I think it might even be an acoustic that he's playing, because you can hear in the bridge, you know, a, a fairly subdued guitar part, 
that has a more trebly tone that an acoustic can often have compared to, you know, let's say an overdriven electric guitar that like Mike's playing. Uh, and as I said at the top, this is a really, really simple song. So Mike's doing a lot of the heavy lifting, along with Benmont, to provide that movement in the song. How he's doing what how he does best and staying mainly out of the way and sitting on those root notes. But boy, does his bass sound fantastic on this track. It's mixed nice and high to give that whole rhythm section prominence, as it should be in what is essentially sort of a, you know, a rock and roll dance track. As Tom says to Paul Zolo, the music was essentially written on the fly and recorded seemingly in one take. I don't hear any musical overdubs on this. I no doubling of Mike's lead or any obvious punch-ins to clean up any of the sections. And I also feel like the lyrics in this one would have been written quickly and with an emphasis on writing from the gut rather than spending a lot of time deliberately shaping and moulding the verses and chorus to, to create a sort of any sort of narrative flow. And it's very unashamedly one of Tom's songs about being mistreated and it's hardly disguised given the repeated refrain the damage you've done. So, I don't know, for me, it's a long way back of Tom's best crafted lyrics, but it, it fits the overall loose spontaneity of the track as a whole, I think. You know, they're fairly disposable lyrics, which is always a rarity in Tom's catalogue, but where a song like Mary's New Car kind of grates on my nerves lyrically, I think this one, with its sort of sneering swagger and attitude, somehow works. It also has a crafty little rhyme that you can miss the first time you listen to it, when Tom sings, Baby, you'd make me a millionaire, but it wouldn't repair... And then he goes into the damage you've done. So that, you know, it's not that obvious sort of one, three or two, four rhyming schema. It's a, it's a cool little line. I like that one. You also have to say that those laid harmonies in the chorus are absolutely gorgeous. And they provide this sort of luxurious texture to what is otherwise a quite a spiky, angular song musically. And I'm pretty sure that would have been Howie and Stan, possibly even Benmont in that section, layering up those harmonies. Doesn't sound like the same voice multitrack to me. But hey. Despite the lovely recognition on Facebook, I'm really not an expert, just a fan with a keen interest in the minutiae of Tom's music, so I could very well be wrong. Now, I mentioned earlier that there's an alternate take of this song that was included in the American Treasure release in 2018. That take feels way slicker and less spontaneous to me, and I'd put money on that being, you know, it's a second or a third take, maybe. I think it's definitely still a straight run-through with the vocals recorded afterwards, but you get a more... For starters, you get a more elaborately structured drum pattern in the intro from Stan, and it feels like the band knows where the changes are now. They know the chord progression, uh, you know, and they're much more sort of ready to play around a structure that they're familiar with. And that's why I think this is a later take. So I'm guessing that the take that ended up on the record was chosen at least in part because it feels just so much more raw and so much more real. <laughs> Okay, Pettyheads, that's all I've got for you this week. Look, not every song on an album has to be mind-blowing. Not every song has to be single-worthy. And not every song has to be complicated or have some sort of wow factor. There's nothing wrong with a solid album track. It's like the gravy at Christmas dinner. You wouldn't want it as the main course, but the meat would probably be a little bit dry without it. The Damage You've Done is a fairly unremarkable track in the Heartbreakers catalogue, and it doesn't stand out much on this album, actually, either. But it's a fun little number, and again, is one of the best-sounding songs on the record sonically, at least for me. I love how his bass tone and how it's mixed. I really like those harmonies on the refrain, but overall, it's not a song I go back to often. It's the Heartbreakers experimenting with a different way of recording, and it captures the feeling of a live jam, but I don't think it ever really gets beyond that. So I'm going to give The Damage You've Done a 5 out of 10, but add the caveat that I still, I still kind of enjoy it, even though I know it's not in the upper echelons of what Tom wrote over the span of his career. Please remember that you can continue to support humanitarian efforts in Ukraine 
in many different ways, and I would urge you to do so. Um, as always, I've added a link to the Red Cross donation page in the episode note, and I'll continue doing that until I don't need to do that. The Tom Petty Project is a proud member of the Deep Dive Podcast Network. So again, I always give these guys a shout out, and girls. We've got girls now too. Uh, go check them out on Twitter at Deep Dive Podnet. I'm sure you'll find something there that you like. They're Honestly, genuinely, they're very good people doing great work, uh, and they're adding new members all the time. You can also check out my other podcast, Seaside Pod Review, um, on the same network. And so that's talking about the music of the rock band Queen, who I also love. And funnily enough, today someone had posted um, on Twitter, if you had to pick or compare the top five songs from Tom Petty against the top five songs from Queen, who wins out? And that's just a question I can't answer because they're so dissimilar. They're, they're just so different as bands that you, you just really can't compare them. It's like comparing apples and oranges. Don't forget to follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at The Tom Petty Project and on Twitter at Tom Petty Project. Go follow, like, subscribe as applicable, and again, please leave a review or a rating and just tell someone else about the podcast. If there's a Tom Petty lover in your life and they haven't heard me ramble on incessantly, you know what? They might enjoy it. The Tom Petty Project is not affiliated with the Tom Petty Estate in any way, and when you look for Tom's music, please, folks, go visit the, you know, the official YouTube channel, go to... Um, legal streaming platforms, all those kinds of things. Don't download, you know, that's... Well, you know what? Go buy a record from a local record store. Go buy a tape cassette. Go buy a CD. Um, and also don't forget to check out the Tom Petty Nation and the Tom Petty Fans Forever groups on Facebook, if you're not already a member. Uh, they really are great fan communities and full of wonderful people you'll probably enjoy chatting with. Until we meet again next week, keep listening to and sharing Tom's music. Try to be kind. Try to say I love you to someone at least once a day. Stay safe and healthy, and I'll be back with you next week to talk about the four track from side one of Let Me Up, I've Had Enough, the wildly different, it'll all work out. Bye-bye.